0: And welcome to The Juice and the Squeeze. I'm Julia Strand, here with my co-host, Jonathan Peel. And today, dear listener, we've got a special treat. We've got somebody else here with us, too. Hi. That's Violet Brown, friend of the show. And uh, you have heard about her in previous episodes about collaboration, working together, uh, doing science well, having fun. Um, Halloween. Halloween, yep. And and we're And, we're here
1: to get all of the deep inside embarrassing stories about Julia.
0: That's not what I was told. This episode oh. was about. <laughs> Darn it!
1: <laughs> it, was, it was worth a try.
0: <laughs> so the the circumstances are that Violet was visiting me for uh, for spring break. Um, she's a PhD student at Washington University in St. Louis, um, and was visiting for spring break when WashU decided to go online for decided. Like they were like, oh, I don't know, we'll just go online for COVID, um, and all of the all of the coronavirus stuff really started to happen. And so I said just stay here and quarantine with us. You might say I got stranded. Have you told that one before? <laughs> no I haven't. <laughs> so Violet got stranded here in Northfield and uh, is is hunkering down and quarantining with us. And so we decided this was the perfect opportunity to have her on the show and have her contribute some of her expertise to our podcast.
1: Yeah, great well welcome Violet. it's great to have you as our first you're our first guest.
0: First guest, thanks,
2: Jonathan.
0: I'm excited. So last time we were talking about uh, sharing the products of our research, talking about like sharing data and sharing code, and how that can help us and help other people and help science more generally. Um, And today we thought we would continue in that vein, but but be talking about how we share kind of the more intangible aspects of research. So not like. I did research, and and here's the stuff that the research created. But some more of the um, abstract, uh, uh, the abstract stuff that is important for going into research about expertise and about techniques, um, but that you can't just b- put on the open science framework and share with everyone. But but um, you know re- requires other forms of sharing. So m- more sharing and more different kinds of sharing are also caring. <laughs>
1: Is that our title? That's <laughs> it's catchy. Well, that I like f- it. Yeah, good, yeah.
0: good. I'm so glad. Yeah, rolls right off the tongue. <laughs> um, and so, so one of the so so for me, one of the big um, uh, big things that I am eager to share that is not exactly a tangible is um, is stuff about how how to do science openly and transparently and, and reproducibly. Um, and there are of course tons of wonderful resources online about. How to do a pre-registration and how to share data and code in a way that people can can understand it, um, and and so when I am uh, sharing the the benefits of doing open science with people, um, a, a lot of times I find myself you know just trying to point people toward the right resources. Uh, when I talk to a colleague who hasn't done anything with open science before, for instance, and they and they you know kind of come in wide eyed saying, "I just." I don't even know where to begin. I know I'm supposed to be doing something, but what? Um, and so one of the one of the things that I am really eager to share with people is just pointing them toward the the existing resources. And that's like that's such an easy one. Um and, and also helping them to see what some of the benefits of doing open science are. So, ooh, even maybe like mm, recording podcast episodes where we talk about open science.
1: I was gonna say it's getting very meta. <laughs> It Could be a or way of sharing. Or, or well, <laughs> I, well, so, like let me interrupt you there. Yeah. If, so how do you like when when you say you want to t- point people towards resources? Like how do you do that? Do you just like off the top of your head be like, oh, you should go to, you know, whatever website, or, or you know, do you have like a little canned email that you send people, or what's your yes. Pitch?
0: Yeah, so it depends. Um, it depends on the context. Um, so recently, um, I was trying to convince a journal to start adopting registered reports, where you get acceptance prior to to doing the study. Um, and so I emailed some people at the Open Science Framework and asked them for, you know, what are the resources that you have for trying to convince journal editors to do this, and you know, giving them templates and examples and things. Um, and got back from um, from them just a wonderful list of resources, and then. And the other day I had a colleague say, I want to encourage this journal that I publish in to do registered reports. How can I convince the editor? And I was like, Oh, perfect. Let me forward you this email that I have. Mm-hmm. Um, and so some of it is just, you know, resources that I've come across that when people are in a similar situation, I can say, Oh, yep, I have I have just the thing. Um, and I think a lot of times, too, just kind of helping people get the lay of the land by talking them through what's the difference between a registered report and a pre-registration and mm-hmm. how, what's involved in sharing data um, and, and just, you know, kind of demystifying some of those things that they may have heard about but not, like, known how to how to implement.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the things that I've tried to do, although not mm-hmm. always um, successfully, is if if I have a topic like that that I want to you know, that I want to pass on links uh, um, unasked for, or that people ask for, you know, for hints to stuff rather than every time going through and kind of refiguring, you know, reinventing the wheel and like being like, oh, what was that one website? Um, I'll either have an email template um, or I'll try to put it on my webpage. So I'll try mm-hmm. to have a webpage for like, even if it's, even if I haven't put a lot of time into it, like, here's a collection of links that I think are useful on. On topic x Mm -hmm. so like i have a link of pages on um like some uh, you know pages for learning r and these are like every time someone suggests oh you should try out this r introduction i like i try to put it on the list i don't know if they're all good i haven't done all of them but just to try to collect them together and then when people ask me how do i learn r i say like i don't know here's my list of 10 things like it's at least a, a starting place for stuff like that
0: Mm -hmm. And you've also done like blog posts too, where you, yeah, you know, kind of collect and. mm -hmm.
1: Well, so I I also this is getting maybe a little bit off the specific topic, but like uh, it's kind of the 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 advice that if you know if you have to explain it once, it doesn't matter how you do it, but by the time you're explaining it two or three or ten times, you should write it down. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so, Mm -hmm. actually, one of the things um, that I found very useful is. Uh, I've, I, when, when undergraduates, uh, want to work in the lab, you know, for course credit, I always ask them to send uh, a CV. And one reason for that is I want to see what their background is. Another reason, um, is, it is a little bit of a, um, it's like a little bit of a filter. Like if you, if you really want to do it, you should take the time to put together a CV because a lot of them don't have one. And if mm-hmm. they don't really care that much, they just emailed like 15 people at the med school and they don't care if it's me. Uh, maybe they won't do it and that's fine so it's a a little it's a very small barrier um, Mm -hmm. which i don't feel bad about because i think it's a useful thing to do so it's kind of like here's a useful thing you should probably do anyway anyway (laughs) it's a long diversion um and i'm giving away (laughs) all my secrets undergraduates yes i I want you to do
0: it but
1: um, but a, a common question like for people who are just starting off like if you're a first year student you're like, well, what the heck do I put on my CV? I don't have all of these categories that, that Dr. Peel has, you know. Um, and so I put together a, a page on my website that's sort of like, how do you make an academic CV? And I, I mm-hmm. kind of uh, uh, pitched it more towards undergraduates or people who are just starting off in the in their career. Uh, and mm-hmm. so I did that, I mean, partly specifically to help those people who are applying to the lab. So if people ask me, what do I do? How do I do a CV? I kind of point them towards this page. Mm-hmm. Which is a long – so sorry, this is a very convoluted way of getting around to, like, I have some knowledge that isn't really written down anywhere that people just sort of learn. Uh, and I think it's useful And so I've been trying to, like, put it on paper, so to speak, to be able to share it more. I think that's kind yeah. of what you're saying, too, is, like, there's useful stuff that you want to share. It's a little bit intangible, but, like, th- there's got to be a way to do it. And, and as you said, that's one reason we have a podcast. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
0: That that segues really nicely into um, one of the reasons that I was keen to have uh, to have Violet on this episode is that she um, re- recently um, put up a, a, a preprint uh, on on Sci that is called what's it called uh, an approachable
2: introduction to linear mixed effects modeling with implementation in R. Yes, don't quote me on that. Also,
0: also catchy title. <laughs> Actually,
1: I, I, I can I fact checked you already, and that is in oh, fact fun. what it's called. So yeah,
0: great, great, perfect. Yeah. Um, so Violet, why don't you share with us kind of like the story of where that paper came from, uh, and, and what inspired you to write it?
2: Yeah. So th- yeah, this is a perfect segue. We were literally just <laughs> talking about this, uh, before we started recording, um, when I was an undergrad, I uh, worked in, in Julia's lab, and I also was her lab manager after I graduated. Um, and I have some, I would say more stats background than the average undergrad. Um, it wasn't my major, but it was something I was really interested in. Uh, and I analyzed a lot of our data, and so I often got questions about how people should be analyzing their data. And I realized that I was getting a bunch of the same questions over and over. And of course, I was happy to repeat myself over and over, but I thought, you know, I should just write all of this down, and uh, I, uh, I did, and I gave it as a present to Julia, <laughs> so originally it was not going to be a manuscript uh, for submission, it was just going to be a present for Julia.
0: Um, she knows what I like.
2: <laughs> but but after that, um, I realized that I started sending that document around to a lot of people, um, and it seemed to be helping a lot of people, and so I decided to turn it into something uh, more tangible. And, I, and yeah, just pre-printed it about two weeks ago or so. And it seems mm-hmm. like it's gotten a pretty good response so far.
1: So can I ask, um, so how did you think about your audience for the initial document that you wrote? Like, was it sort of like other students in Julia's lab? And then and then how did that change when you went to, to turn it into a preprint? Like, anyway, did you notice any difference in how you thought about it? Or is it just sort of like a formatting thing?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, originally, it, w- it was intended for students who were, interested who had a background in speech perception research so this is uh one area psycholinguistics is one area that uh mixed effects modeling is very well suited for um so it was originally intended for students who had a bunch of research experience but not a bunch of uh kind of analytical experience um but as i started to think about it more i realized that it's also kind of perfect for people who are trained in the kind of anova world um and kind of know that they should be using mixed effects models to analyze their data but don't really know where to start and so it kind of morphed to something uh i guess it's more geared towards graduate students who have a little bit of statistics background um but also for like early career researchers who grew up in a time or not grew up literally but (laughs) were trained (laughs) trained. in a time when uh when anovas were more popular and now we have this shift kind of towards mixed effects modeling um, and so I kind of wrote it with them in mind. hmm
1: I mean, I would also say like non-early career researchers who like, all yes. of whom <laughs> late there When that ANOVAs were sort of the preferred way of doing it. Yeah.
0: Well, and it's and it's interesting too, because I mean, at least for me, I was never like I was never got any formal training in linear mixed effects models, right? Like I kind of missed that in grad school. In grad school we were still using SPSS and ANOVAs. Mm-hmm. Um and and so then all of a sudden when I was an early career researcher and all of my paper when i would send off a paper they would say yeah this is cool but really you should be doing uh linear mixed effects models here and i was like oh gosh i guess i gotta learn what this is mm-hmm. and when i think about how much easier and better it would have been for me to figure out how to do it if i had had you know this paper that is now written um i just i'm am, i am so happy for all the people who are trying to figure it out now that that they have that kind of resource mm-hmm. yeah it's, it's a very different kind of paper than
2: the ones at least that I've been able to find, that are out there. There are some helpful tutorials um, online. And other than that, it seems like there are very technical papers that are intended for an audience who has a lot more statistics training than I think the average uh, researcher does. Um, and, I mean, it's, it's hard. Psychological researchers have to be able to do some statistics. And, um, yes, yeah, so I wanted to write something for people who know that they should be doing this and are kind of, like, nervous to start uh, and overwhelmed when they get these really technical papers.
1: Mm-hmm. So here's another question. Um, so again, just thinking about sort of audience and how you decided to share this. Uh, so originally it was like a document; it was sort of like a more of an internal thing that you would pass around personally. Uh, and then, of course, you went the preprint um, journal article route. Um, but then you could imagine a middle ground where you might like, you know, put it on a web page and you know be able to share that with people. Uh, mm-hmm. And so, what? Yeah, why did you go the more of a paper a paper preprint route?
2: Um, I think just because it's more likely to get more traffic. Um, mm-hmm. I, could, I could put it on my personal website, but I think probably six people ever have been to my personal <laughs> website. Uh-huh. Um, so, so, yeah, that, w- that was an option. But but it turns out that the preprint has gotten uh, – uh, people have interacted with it on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe that would have worked too. But if I can you know, get it published uh, in a way where many people can access it, uh, it seems like a good way to do it.
0: And also, I mean, and and she's had, you know, like stats professors and, you know, psycholinguists like me um, look at it, too. But I think also I'm just I'm gonna be really interested to see like what the reviewers have to say and how it can Mm -hmm. be, you know, improved by their suggestions, too.
1: I mean, I guess I I kind of guessed you were going to say all that. But it's interesting, though, because I think a lot of people. uh, So, I mean, um, no, I guess no judgment on any of these categories, but if you did like a pie chart we're probably not supposed to do pie charts anymore either, right? As long as it adds a, up to a hundred, I yes. think it's
0: okay. <laughs> uh,
1: if you did a pie chart of like all the people who like thought about, like, you know, all, who thought about sharing knowledge. Right. And so some of it is like, I tell the people in my lab when they ask me and I stop there and other uh-huh. people are like, I wrote, I wrote this in a word document that lives on my computer and I'll email it to you if you ask, right. Uh-huh. All the way through like, I put it on my webpage and then like you publish a paper and I don't know what, I don't know what's beyond that, like running your own summer school or something. Um, mm-hmm. But there's a range of ways you can share that information. And I think there are sort of like costs and benefits to each of those. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I, so I personally um, in my career I've benefited really heavily from, from methods articles in lots of different areas. And, but frankly a lot of times the methods articles are dense and hard to read. And so I've especially benefited from those like, Methods or tutorial papers that have been actually made stuff very clear, mm-hmm. um, and so now, well, so on the so a couple of things. On the one hand, uh, I don't know if I always cite those because sometimes it's not like it's not a direct thing that I learned or whatever. So I, I mean, I don't know if I'm giving back as much credit as maybe I should. But from mm-hmm. a, like a, a, impacting my science, they've had a huge effect. Um, so I think that is a really it's a way you can have a have a bigger effect on more people, which you kind of mm-hmm. alluded to. Mm-hmm. um and then also, but like, again, yeah, getting feedback from people and going through a peer review process, I think also adds kind of a stamp of um uh, you know anyway, you you've got some endorsement from other people in the field, and because it's out there as an article, you can't just go you know change it or take it down if people don't like it, so I think it kind of forces you to be a little more accountable um not you, but forces one to be more accountable, so I would tend to trust you know, if all I have is a blog post, I'll read it. But if there's like, um, you know, some blog post on our bloggers about a thing versus a published article in a journal, that I would probably trust the explanation in the journal, right? And so there is a sort of levels of like, believability or, or something. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think all of which is to say, I think there are benefits uh, to the community to going through the extra steps of of doing that. I mean, I think there are also costs. So if I'm going to write a blog post, I could maybe do it in half an hour or two hours or a day. And it would take me way longer than that to write a journal article. So I, I have to put a lot more time in. I'll probably, but I'll probably also be more careful about the work that I do. So I think there is an extra cost, but I, I like it when people take that extra time.
0: Mm, sometimes the juice is worth the squeeze,
1: huh? <laughs> it, one could almost say, yeah. <laughs>
0: That kind of reminds me
2: of uh, how some people say, you know, data available upon request. That's kind of what I was like before. Like, I had this right. knowledge where I was like, if, if you ask, sure, I will tell you about if this. If you
0: happen to be someone who knows me and
2: mm-hmm. you happen right. to ask, whatever, yeah. Uh-huh. But you're well, and totally also, right. I had
1: yeah.
2: – oh, I was just going to say I had to be more careful when I was writing it, just like if you're, you know, putting your stimuli online, mm-hmm. people are going to be more careful about that, and I think that's good to be held accountable.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, but the other, so the other part of this, too, though, I think it um, would benefit you more also because – we still don't have a great like way to give people credit for really cool blog posts. Like Mm -hmm. you you could put it on your CV, but no one cares. Um, and and no one does. However, if you have an article, um, even if no one cites it, it at least gives you an item on your CV. Uh, but I suspect that lots of people are going to find this useful and cite it. And so then you get some, you know, um, some kind of professional recognition for doing the work that I think is really important. So Mm -hmm. I guess what I'm saying is there's lots of ways to share this data, but a lot of them don't involve, uh, don't involve, they're not quite as helpful to other people and they don't get you as much credit. And this way you get both. So Mm -hmm. um, this wasn't supposed to be like the, just everyone tell Violet how great she is, but it's also true. I think, I think (laughs) she's pretty um, great though. She's pretty great. Um, And I think in this case, I think you made a really, I really like the choice you made here.
0: Thanks, Jonathan. Yeah. So when, when, when you were talking about like the, the different like levels of sharing stuff of, you know, just I'll tell people in my lab about it all the way up to, I will run a summer program that teaches people how to do it. Um, I I was also thinking about the people who have, um, in, who have like gone above and beyond to share resources or techniques or something, um, that others will find useful in a way that they, they totally don't have to. And, um, and, and I'm I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call out uh, a listener of ours who won't know that this is coming. Um, but Matt Wynn is a researcher who does work on, on speech perception and has on his website this amazing collection of scripts for doing things that psycholinguists and linguists have to regularly do um, in a program called PROT, which is, um, well, it's, you know, it, computational techniques for doing things that we have to do. And when I discovered it, it was like, it was like, a, like, I was like a, kid in a candy store. I was like, what you can do this. You get, there's a script for this. This is amazing. And, and, and that's the kind of thing that like, he could very easily figure out how to do all those himself and just keep them in his lab. Um, and, and it does take time and energy to put those online. And it has saved me so much time and energy that, that he's done that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, couple of papers ago i emailed him and i was like hey this is amazing thank you how can i cite this and you know we like figured out a way you know that that i could cite it to to, like actually give him the kind of you know proper attribution Mm -hmm. but but it's also the kind of thing where that's you know even if that's not like on his cv i think everyone who's in the field who has uh ever used those will like think much more highly of him and Mm -hmm. be grateful to him and, you know, trust his work because we know he's willing to share it and those kinds Mm -hmm. of things. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think there's real, like, even if the the benefits of it aren't super obviously tangible, I, um, I, I, I think they're still there. It would be nice if there's a way to like professionally credit them, you know, more specifically. But, um, but I think, I think they do get some credit.
1: Yeah. At least for me. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Matt. Um, and if I should say, um, as always, the links that we're talking about will all be in the show notes. And uh, should we quiz Violet? Violet, what's the website of our podcast?
2: Juiceandsqueeze.net you got slash
1: it. 19.
2: 19.
1: For this, for this one. Yeah. Juiceandsqueeze.net slash 19. So mm-hmm. we'll have a link to Violet's paper and uh, Matt's prot scripts and anything else we talk about. Right on there. Um, mm-hmm. I, yes, I don't mean, to, I, I sort of, I as I was talking before, I was realizing, I, I don't mean to suggest you should only like share stuff when it improves your own career. I think that's mm-hmm. kind of, you know, um, and I don't think you, you thought that, but I, mm-hmm. I don't want anyone to think that. However, <laughs> given the limited time and resources we have, I think it's worth, it's worth thinking about, you know, how, how these things affect us, because, you know, there are um, some people who are super, super helpful and never get any recognition. And I think it's. Uh, that can be a tough place to be in. So I think it's nice to be able to, um, yeah, get, get something back for giving to the community.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: What about, um, so another place that I've gotten a lot of really good information from, uh, is mailing lists. So a lot of, uh-huh. uh, and this is bad, you know, so you kids out there, we used to have a thing called electronic mail, uh, and we would send <laughs> each other messages and we would read them. Um, uh, I know everyone knows the email list, but I've, you know, it used to, this used to be so exciting. It was like the main So, If you wanted to use, um, prot, right. There probably is a prot mailing list that I'm not on. Right. Uh, anyway, if you wanted to use a computer program, you would sign up for the mailing list to be a user mailing list. And if you had a question, you would write to the list and ask, ask people for help. Um, and this is great. And so I, I was, really, um, I've
0: heard of this thing. It's, it's called Twitter.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, this is a thing. Uh, no one, uh, people don't do this quite so much anymore. Right. right? Um, but I, especially when I was learning, um, like, fMRI analysis. Um, so I made huge use of the SPM email list and and to some degree the FSL email list, which are on, like, the worst... Um, sorry, anyone who runs this, but the mail server, the search on the mailing list is just horrible. So I'd end up trying to search for this term and get hundreds of results. But if I could dig through and find the right papers, there would be some very um, helpful responses. And, and there really was, like, a... a fairly core number of people, like five or 10, who would respond to most things. Um, so that was really useful. However, um, the thing I noticed was a lot of the replies were like really repetitive, right? So if you, ha- if you have five people who use your software, they'll all pretty soon get to know all the answers of what they're asking. If you have like 1,000 or 2,000 or 10,000 people, um, you know, every year someone has the same question, right? How do I do thing X? Uh, And so every year there'd be a new email saying, explaining it. And then after a few years, the emails would say, well, did you, did you please search the mailing list for the old explanation to this? Um, So there's a whole lot of repetition so that on the one hand, those mailing lists or Twitter, right. uh, are very useful for like asking questions and getting feedback, but it's also very like ephemeral, right. Uh I mean, all the, and and that's the thing that bothers me a bit about Twitter. I mean, you know, I think, tweets are mostly available, but finding them can be a real pain. And so you get these mm-hmm. really useful links or useful resources. Someone will do like a tweet thread of 20 tweets on this really cool topic or really cool paper. Uh, and then it like disappears. Uh, where does it go? I don't know. It's hard. It's hard to find it again. Um, and sometimes I'll forget who did it or, you know, just it's always, it's, it's challenging to find. So I, I do think um, even though there are advantages to that sort of informal, quick communication format, um, Getting something more permanent and more linkable, uh, which doesn't have to be a paper, but it could be a paper, uh, is really valuable. Mm-hmm.
2: Do you know about bookmarking tweets?
1: <laughs> I do. It's a great feature. <laughs> I, I've heard about these, these bookmarks of what, of what you speak. Yeah, no, but you know, a lot of times it's sort of like I'll, I'm like, oh, someone said a thing about the whatever, mm-hmm. and I, I go to Google it. And I for me, my my googling of tweets is usually less effective than googling of papers or something like that. Mm-hmm.
0: I get such a kick out of it on Twitter when, you know, this happens all the time and I have done it too, where someone's like, I remember somebody tweeted a while ago about this thing. Who, yeah. who was that? No, what exactly. was that link? Yeah. And it's uh-huh. like, not only are you using Twitter to share information, but you were using Twitter to help you find the information that somebody <laughs> else already shared. Yeah.
1: And then also like how often that works, right? Even right. if you're really vague about it, there's, like, there's a thing about the thing and, and yeah. someone will find it for you. Yeah.
0: You know, I remember, um, early on when I was, when I had my, when I had just started my faculty job um, and I would be thinking about like, Oh, there's this paper and it did something and it was found this thing and whatever. And, and I knew that I could either Google for hours Or I could email my PhD mentor and he would know instantly. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And, and it's, you know, it's another one of those things of like the searching, like I know how to search, I ask Mitch and that's how I search. Um, (laughs) And uh, yeah, getting, trying to, getting, getting easy access to the information. um, uh, Yeah, there there are different ways of going about it. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, I just ask Violet because she (laughs) has an encyclopedic knowledge for those things.
1: It's always good to know who to ask.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so
1: So Violet, next time I can't think of a tweet, I'm just gonna ask you for it. And then hopefully you've bookmarked it.
0: Assuming you follow all the same people. Yeah. Right. I know. right. Mm-hmm. Um so so one of one of the other um things that I wanna talk about about um sharing the intangibles. Um is that in the in the last few years I've become um, really interested in topics related to, to measurement and how we measure the variables that we're interested in so most psychological constructs that um, that people care about like say depression or uh, listening effort or uh, speech understanding um, are are these kind of abstract concepts that you can't measure directly I can't just like stick a thermometer in somebody and be like, you have a depression score of seven. Now now we know what that means, right? So we have to, like, measure them using some kind of uh, indirect measures. Um, And I got into this because one of the areas of research that I do on listening effort, um, there's a lot of variability in how people measure effort. Um, And and so I've gotten really, uh, have really been thinking a lot about how do we measure things and how do we know if we're actually measuring what we think we're measuring? And if we're trying to measure depression, how do we know we're not accidentally measuring anxiety? And if we're trying to measure listening effort, how do we know we're not actually measuring boredom? Um, and, and so one of the things that I am eager to share with people is an appreciation for how great it is to think about measurement. (laughs) (laughs) Uh (laughs) And, um, and, and so, um, with with the measurement stuff, with open science stuff, uh, I I I want to be mindful of not just like proselytizing. And anytime I talk to anybody about research, being like, "Well, do you know you could do it better if you or wouldn't?" Uh, I I don't I don't think that thing's actually measuring what you think it's measuring, right? Like I'm I don't want to be a, you know, you know I don't wa- I don't want to be a downer, right? Uh-huh. I just. Um, and so, so my, my approach for that has kind of been every time I have the opportunity to talk to somebody about my research, um, I, e- even if I'm just, like, talking about listening effort research, uh, I just – I try to, like, smuggle in a lot of interesting stuff about measurement and open science, um, a little, like, you know, s- spoonful of – Science helps the measurement go down.
1: Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> I have used that line too many
0: times on this podcast. Um, uh, I you just came up with that. I just, well, that one I said before. A spoonful of enthusiasm helps the learning go down. But uh-huh. actually, you know what? This is this is kind of the same thing in just another form. Um, because I think that that is another like that. That's another um, thing that is is so valuable to share. It's not like here's the. Code from my study, but like here is a way of thinking about measurement that is probably broadly applicable to lots of different areas of research, um, and 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 a lot of the time when I'm thinking about like sharing ideas about open science or about measurement or like Violet sharing stuff about stats, um, I think that the the potential for those things to have like lasting positive impacts. On science generally, um, there's so much more potential for those things to to be helpful than the like the theoretical papers that I have actually about listening effort, right? Mm -hmm. Which is which is like my main bread and butter of what my research is about, right? Um... (laughs) Things okay over there, Jonathan? Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, we're doing Okay, 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 okay. Um, but. So, so, right. So the research that like my research program is centered on, I love doing and is really interesting. But I, I also just love getting to talk about these more like meta science issues with people, because I think those are so much more broadly applicable, and have the potential to be helpful in in, in a much wider range of um, range of disciplines. So that's one that I'm like, really, it's an intangible about how we do research that is so fun to share. And I'm so, you know, so eager to share with a wider audience. Mm, it's almost like I should talk about it in some kind of public venue for right. people listen to my voice.
1: <laughs> yeah, we should we should work on that, Julian.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, so something I um, wanted to ask uh, Violet was sort of um, you know having uh, you're, I think it's safe to say you're a different scientific generation than I am, Violet. We'll, we'll let the audience <laughs> guess whether you're older or younger. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, probably younger. And by the way, have I told the story yet? Um, I think I have, but bear with me when it was like my first year at WashU, Uh, and I was having, I was hanging out with all my undergrads and one of them was talking about something and they said, Oh, it's different than it was in your generation, Dr. Thiel. And I was so offended because I wasn't really offended, but I was like, what do you mean my generation? Like we're the same generation. And then I was like, Oh no, we're not. I'm old enough to be your, uh, your dad, which we didn't, I didn't have any kids yet. So that was also extra, super weird. But anyway, um, So I think it's safe to say I'm in a different scientific generation than you, Violet. Um, And so when I was getting going through my PhD program and really through through all of my postdocs, you know, open science like you know, trademark hashtag was not a thing. Um, And it's really been in the last five or ten years that that sort of become more popular. So what was it like for you, um, kind of coming up in that culture? Like, just what's your perspective on? On science more broadly, like, is it weird that everyone doesn't think about these sharing issues in the same way, or does that does that seem normal? And you feel like you got some special training, or, or
2: yeah, what's your perspective? Yeah, I mean, it's tricky because it's it's the only thing I know is is growing up in this world, especially being trained by Julia. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's the only thing I know, but I think it varies a ton from institution to institution, also. So I'm sure there are people in my generation. Uh, who are not being trained in open science practices? I mean, mm-hmm. not I'm sh- not. I think I'm positive that, that, <laughs> right. that that's the case. Sure. Um, but I think yeah, it depends a lot on the institution. And my current institution, WashU, is is really good about it. But it seems like the uh, the kind of disconnect is is implementing these practices. Like it's talked about a lot at WashU, uh, and it's taught, but people aren't really implementing it. And I think um, that probably varies more from institution to institution also
1: well that also varies by like if you're if you're working in someone's lab which most if you're not a pi right you don't don't have your own lab you're probably working in someone else's lab um and a lot of times then um changing the culture uh people can kind of be aware of things and think Mm -hmm. about them but actually changing how things are done um you know there's usually some top-down influence there and so it can be really challenging if you you know, your first year graduate student in a lab and you say, actually, I want to do something totally different than you've ever done it before. Um, that can be challenging. So I think in some ways, change is understandably slow unless you get someone who's like really gung ho and just jumps all in, you know, mm-hmm. right away. But I don't, you know, maybe that's not the norm.
2: Yeah, that's another way that I think I've been really lucky too. my my current advisor and also Julia are both super into open science. And so, yeah, it's hard. It's hard to talk about my perspective as opposed to other people's Mm -hmm. because it's it's Mm -hmm. the only way I know.
1: (laughs) Well, I guess that was sort of, I mean, that's what I was wondering. And I sort of, in a way, I think that's um, encouraging because, you know, I think I, I share a lot of those, those values. And I think, I mean, people are entitled to their own opinions and and certainly having a diversity of ways of doing things um, has a lot of benefits, but I also kind of like that. So things, there are things for me that I have to think really consciously and intentionally about to do that I think are good for science, but they don't come naturally. And I see mm. other people, particularly in younger generations, um, who those are just the way things are done. Like, you, why would you do it any other way? Of course, you would, of course you would share your code when you're doing an analysis. Like, you don't have to think extra about it. It's just how you do things. So I think that change, which is not only generational, I mean, I'm sort of using that as a shorthand, but I, I see it more in, in a younger generation, um, is really encouraging to me. And so Mm -hmm. I think so just to bring this back to our our bigger topic, I mean, how do you make this more easier and how do you lower the barriers to doing this? It's by explaining how it's done so that, you know, you don't decide I want to do a thing. I want to do this kind of statistical analysis, but I don't know how. Then you're kind of stuck. But if you have a paper to go read, that tells you step by step how to do it. Then you have a path towards doing it. So that's why I think providing all of these resources that are um you know, aimed at people without a necessarily a strong background is really, really beneficial.
0: Mm-hmm. And Violet within, um, like within your cohort or I've just like students in the program more generally, like are, do you have opportunities to talk with people about open science stuff? I mean, like, do people ask you about it? Or I mean, you know, do, do you have, do you have opportunities to like, like share that intangible stuff? Yeah, well, they ask me about it a lot because I talk about it a lot. So, so if, if well, but I mean, but this is yeah. But that's like you know that's that's one of the ways that you make it clear to people that you're a resource. Yeah, yeah. One thing, one thing
2: I did is uh, we had to take a, a summer teaching course, um, and I did instead of most people kind of choose a topic that's related to either their research interests or some outside interest to give a, a lecture on as if as if they're a professor. Uh, and I chose to do mine on open science to talk. To preach to my cohort <laughs> about the benefits of open science, uh, but one of the things I did is um, I like printed out a copy of the pre-registration form on OSF with uh, with kind of responses filled in uh, for for some hypothetical study. Because as I was saying, like one of the hard things is people were like, "Oh, I, I know that I should be doing open science, but like the implementation is hard. When you go to do a pre-registration, there are like eight different options, and uh, it can be overwhelming." Um, and so that's just one kind of concrete example of mm-hmm. of me trying to trying to spread mm-hmm. the good word. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> you know, an, another one is um I can't remember if we've talked about this on the on the show or not, but um when Violet was lab managing for me, she um identified that there is this like problem there's this challenge that we always have when new students join the lab, uh that there was um You know, I have a new, like, sophomore undergraduate who has taken intro psych and a linguistics class and knows they're interested in language and wants to do research with me. And I see promise in them. So I invite them to join my lab. And then all of a sudden we ask them to, like, you know, sit down in a lab meeting where we're talking about comparing different models of spoken word recognition and linear mixed effects models. And, you know, they're just they're so underwater early on and and so when people start and they say oh like what do I need to read what do I need to know about to get to get caught up and I'd be like ah there's this review paper that's 10 years old and this part of it is useful and I don't know read the introduction from some of the papers we've written recently or whatever but it we didn't have um a resource that would help people understand the literature that is exactly related to what my lab does um and so when Violet was lab managing for me. She uh, surprised me with what we call the Perception Lab. My, the, my the name of my research lab is Perception Lab. Um, Perception Lab Crash Course, which is just a document that's like, here's what our research is about. Here are all of the important studies that have been done um, that are kind of like critical to understanding the theoretical framework of the work that we do. And here's what our lab has done, organized by topic area. Here's the audiovisual speech ones. Here's the listening effort ones and so forth. Um, so it's this like, totally accessible document that I can just hand to new RAs and say, this is, this is what you need to know to have the background. And it's of course also like full of citations. So if they're interested in something, you know, they can like go in and, and um, uh, look at those other papers. It's like, you know, references to find other papers. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, and so this is another really nice example of when you have your head very in a research area you know, which papers are important and you know, which concepts are important. Um, and, and that's like a view that you can only have when you've really read everything, right? If you like get into any research area, you just like start Googling and find papers, but who knows if it's a good one or who Mm -hmm. knows, you know, how influential it's been. Um, and so I feel like like writing those kinds of review papers, whether they are for publication or just for in in house use um, is also like such an incredible service to the field because it's like, Hey, I've got this different perspective. I've got like the long view. Let me make it accessible to someone who, you know, is kind of still, still in the weeds with this content. Mm -hmm. And it makes it easier for them to join in lab meetings too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: So I forgot about that. (laughs) I mean, this is sort of one, um, one thing I think about when writing review papers too is I, so, I think you can do this in lots of different ways, having a lab document or a wiki or whatever. Um, but I often, uh, I enjoy writing review papers, but I also I sometimes struggle with like, who's my audience? If I'm going to write a, like a chapter or a review article on like speech mm-hmm. perception, I'm like, well, I would write this very differently for so-and-so who's been in the field 20 years longer than me versus me mm-hmm. versus like, A first year PhD student or an undergraduate or something. Um, And I tend to err a little bit on the side of the more junior people because, for the reason that you said, is when I was starting off, I found these kinds of reviews um, uh, just incredibly useful in sort of terms of distilling. What are the big themes and the big pictures, and what what's the evidence that kind of supports each one? And so, you know, as opposed to a systematic review, we we're like, there's eighteen thousand articles, and I will now uh-huh. categorize each one. It's I, you know, when you, especially when you're starting off, you don't need that. You need sort of like here have been the the most influential, um, or you know, a, influential, not necessarily in the number of citations, but sort of that have changed the thinking, uh, or that have been the most useful in, in certain ways. I think, um, and, and I always view. Writing review papers as um, it's not really service in the sense that, like, it's kind of it's research and and also like, helps my CV or whatever. But like, I kind of try to make them helpful for the for the field in the same way, right? So I try mm-hmm. to I try to put the extra effort in to make it more readable more accessible and to kind of do that for people and and this is sort of selfish too right because then i can if people come to my lab i can say well just read this paper that i wrote uh (laughs) which also feels really annoying sometimes (laughs) i feel bad doing it you know but what should i how what should i I read how about here's here's a paper by peel and another paper by peel um so (laughs) i apologize for that too but the reason is i've actually tried to make them appropriate right for that for that Mm -hmm. kind Uh of reason
2: and that's good not just for beginning people. It's good for experts, too. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of sure. information out there, and anything that's going to help make it more accessible and easier to digest mm-hmm. is is good for the field.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I've got a question for you, Jonathan. Um, you, you write many more grants than I do. And I know that a thing that people sometimes do is ask people who write a lot of grants if they can see their grants you know, like past applications for like, as examples of successful mm-hmm. applications. Mm-hmm. Um, is that like, do people ask you for those? How comfortable are you sharing those? I mean, because this is again, like, in that case, they're not looking at it because they want to see what your science is. They want to see what your grants personship is, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are a lot of questions in there. Uh, mm-hmm. not, not many people ask me. Um, mm-hmm. When people do ask, I'm always happy to share. Uh I've toyed around with just like putting my grants publicly somewhere mm-hmm. like on Dropbox or something, and really the reason I haven't done it is just like I just have too much to do and and that has not been at the top of the list but um I would be pretty comfortable with that i think
0: mm-hmm.
1: um uh, and I think it's a great idea, and I think if you're so if you're writing a grant, you should look at it as many grants as you can look at and and if some of those are mine i'm ha- I'm happy to to help that way um I think there's also. Well, I worry a little bit because there's such variability from um, topic to topic, uh, so from study section to study section, and even among reviewers in the same study section. That I, you know, I've sent um, one of our grants uh, went in. I forget if it was three or four times, and the last time it got funded. But it went from like a very good score. I think it was like a very good score to not discussed to a bad score to funded with with what I would say are very superficial changes. Like I did yeah. not spend a lot of time. So the, the meat of the grant and the theory and what I thought was a cool idea was exactly the same on the fourth version as the first version. Uh, so depending on the day, this can be like super heartening because I, I, you know, you know, survivorship bias. Cause we got the grant, like I stuck with it and I persisted and we got the grant. <laughs> Isn't that great um, on a bad day? It's kind of like, you know what? I had to go through like two and a half years of basically proposing the same idea uh, uh-huh. to, to get the money and that's you know it didn't really seem like it was that much improved uh-huh. so uh, sorry this is, this is a really long answer to your question so i'm happy to share grants but i also like um a little bit i i like to um people are welcome to, to look at them but then i want to have that caveat somewhere so maybe uh-huh. maybe we should do a whole other podcast about this because i think it's very it, like when i first started writing i was like i would ask someone for a funded grant and i would look at it, i'm like oh this is how you write a good grant Mm-hmm. And I would like try to copy it, but then you look at five grants that all got funded, and you and you might notice that like there are like four, there are five totally different ways of writing a grant on different topics, and also one of them was actually kind of a bad grant, and they all got funded. So then right. you start to feel like <laughs> I don't know what to do. So I, it, is, I, yeah. it, it hopefully gets you in the ballpark of like here's a successful approach, but I I think for me more than manuscripts, I think with manuscripts I would be more comfortable being like this is a pretty good outline you should start with this Mm -hmm. and i think with grants it's more like you've got a million choices and here's one that happened to work one time like Mm -hmm. you know so so yes use it but take it with a grain of salt
0: and and how about you Violet? like um uh when you were writing your nsf graduate research fellowship did did you have examples to work from
2: yeah i had so i I found a website of people who had posted it and actually i hadn't thought about posting mine i absolutely should because it yeah. did get funded mm-hmm. um i'll at least put it on my website for those six viewers <laughs> <laughs> all six of you can see uh-huh. um i had yeah there was a, a carleton professor who also had gone to wash you adam putnam mm-hmm. um and he had an nsf and so he had sent it to me and i consulted this website but um you know i looked for trends there was a lot of bold text mm-hmm. I kind of stuck mm-hmm. with that mm-hmm. um but yeah it can be it can be really helpful just to see like the style of writing. It's so different from anything I'd done before. Mm -hmm. Um, Being concise is key. That's what I learned. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. Well, I do think, um, I mean, I think the most helpful feedback generally in those cases comes like, so if, I mean, yes, it's good to look at examples and that doesn't, you're not asking anyone else for their time. Um, If you do get feedback, it's from people who have been on the reviewing end because they kind of get used to seeing them. Uh, But one one of the things that I find um, and there is there is some benefit into sort of fitting in with the general style. So if you read five grants that got funded, like I was just now complaining about how they're all a little bit different, but you'll probably notice some similarities in okay. in the presentation, like some bigger um, like trends that you can come away with. and that is actually very useful. right? So when you're when I'm reviewing grants and I have a, a stack of eight or ten grants, usually they're all within this realm of like, here's kind of how people do it. And if there, if I got one that was sort of like all bar charts and not much text and like, you know, whatever, way out of the norm of what we're used to seeing, um, uh, that would, it would take me more cognitive effort to get into it. And I think that would probably be a bad thing. Mm -hmm. That was not supposed to be a rant against bar charts. I was in my, you can't see, I'm gesturing in front of me, which you can't see, um, but I'm picturing like uh, not a well done figure. Like you, th- you threw a bunch of numbers in PowerPoint. A pie chart. Pi-
0: pie charts. <laughs> <laughs> a pie chart, yeah.
1: All 3D pie charts that take up the whole page that don't have to do with the, um, the text. I don't know. Anyway, the point is kind of conforming to what's generally expected, I think, is, is helpful. And then looking at examples as a way to help with that. Mm-hmm. That's a great, idea. I mean, that's a great topic though, because that um, grant writing, I mean, I think paper writing, but maybe even more grant writing is an area where there is a lot of like accumulated knowledge that individuals have. And, and also a lot of superstition, but very mm-hmm. few resources out there um, that kind of, you know, collate that or make it digestible.
0: Yeah. Do you think that's because it is like, do you think that's because it's very uh, specific to the institution and the topic and the study section and all of that? Um, do you think that's because with juice is not worth the squeeze for people to put the time in to do that. Um, That the people who know how to do it don't want the people who don't know how to do it to know how to do it. (laughs) What do you you think drives that?
1: I don't know. It's probably a little bit of everything. Yeah. Um, I mean, I do feel like, so uh, all of my caveats that I was starting to hem and haw through just now are sort of like, well, if you were sending it, if you were sending a grant on a topic related to what I do to the study section that I know the best, Mm -hmm. I would feel really good about the advice I give you. But Mm -hmm. when you start to move away from that, I think you, you know, well, there's a lot of, again, there's a lot of kind of superstition and assumptions, but it feels like, um, these, a lot of things don't generalize as much as we, as we would think. Mm -hmm. Um, so anyway, so I think, I think I would get a little bit hesitant because, you know, because I'd worry.
0: Sure. Yeah. Um,
1: I, I, so people, there are some blog posts out there about it. Um, uh, so drug monkey blog is someone on Twitter who also, has a blog Um, and I just went to look at it right now and apparently uh, the the site is down. It was a, so if you look for um, drug monkey on Scientopia, uh, you might find it or I'll try to track down the link, but he uh, often posts about NIH grant writing um, from a variety of perspectives, but I actually um, found that very useful. It was some, sometimes there were hard truths uh, that I had to learn, but I I found that advice to be very
0: useful. Mm -hmm. It, it, it just occurred to me it's funny that this just occurred to me that like this whole idea of sharing the intangible aspects of research is like is why we started this podcast i just occurred i know i was just here being like mm, we talk about open science talk about measurement i'm like wait, wait wait hold on it's almost it's almost like this had a bigger yeah mm-hmm. um no, that like when when we were originally talking about how how much of science happens behind closed doors and in ways that is not accessible to people who don't already have a seat at the table. Um, and that and that talking about it in a public venue is a way to make that more accessible. So mm-hmm.
1: Right. Well and, and, and again, something that we've talked about before, Julia, is is for us, um and you and I both I think enjoy writing, but but the, just talking about it on on this format kind of lowered the barrier to sharing. Mm-hmm. So maybe like one way to extrapolate that to other people is sort of like find ways to share your knowledge that where there's a lower barrier, whether that's like tweeting about it or doing a podcast or um, just talking about it loudly in a coffee shop. So other people overhear you. I don't know. But just like if there are things <laughs> that you want to share with people, you can probably find a way that seems more fun or, where, you know, where the juice is worth the squeeze mm-hmm. um, for you, which might be different than than how it is for me and Julia.
0: And that one of the ways that we uh, build up a culture of being willing to share is showing gratitude to the people who have shared already. So mm-hmm. if you read a resource that is useful to you in your work uh, or come across a blog post or a tweet or something, um, you know, let, let the let the author of that know so mm-hmm. that they feel good about it and want to keep doing it. Write them a thank you note. Write them a thank you note. Yeah. I was
1: going to say. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's great. <laughs> hey, that's a great segue. So speaking of thank you notes... Um, i want to send an audio thank you note to all of you who listen uh every week or or if this is your first week then thank you too Uh, but i know we have lots of people who listen regularly and and we really appreciate you guys listening um some of you have been kind enough to support us on patreon and we especially uh, appreciate you and uh, i have a stack of juice and squeeze postcards that i would love to send you if you support us on patreon um If you're feeling really sad, I will also send you one anyway just to thank you for being a listener. You can drop us a line. But anyway, we we send everyone who supports us on Patreon a list of those. And we're starting a new – I'm starting a new thing. Julia may or may not join in. Either way is fine. I'm going to start posting random – I shouldn't say random. uh, uh, A curated
0: collection. A a curated
1: (laughs) collection of stuff that I find useful to Patreon. So I I posted a recipe there um, that we had last week, which was delicious since we're all – locked out and, and trying to find interesting things to cook. And I just found a interesting R um, package. So I've been really interested in um, a particular project, which I won't bore you with the details, but it was going to require going through and running a whole bunch of models. Um, and I thought it would take a long time. So I looked into um, parallel computing in R to see if I could find a way to speed that up. And so I have a link to um, the... Uh, library that I found that is going to help me to do that. And I'm happy to share that. So I'll try to post little little things that Julia and I don't have time to talk about, but that our audience might be interested in um, just as an extra way to say thank you for listening.
0: Thank you for listening. <laughs> and we'll uh, see you next time.
1: All right, Violet, thank you for being here.
0: Thanks for having me, Jonathan and Julia.
1: All right, we'll see everybody soon. Bye. Stay Bye. safe. Bye. <laughs>